Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. All rise. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. Well, we're just out of our summer break. And our lovely editorial intern, Marguerite, put up her favorite pics from the podcast we did in the last few years uh, with some good ones. So we hoped you enjoyed our offerings over the summer. I certainly did. I really enjoyed looking back at ones like Bringing Up the Bodies, which was uh, all about investigating mass graves. And what keeps on striking me when we go back over our episodes is how the themes keep on coming back again and again. I hope we never get bored with this, but it's just, oh my God, you know, we keep covering the same stuff. Yeah, but we did so much. What happened to me over the summer is that for some reason, my like podcast catcher kind of caught on to an old episode and I was listening to it, but I wasn't hearing our voices. So I was listening to the Canada episode of cultural genocide. And I was listening to the discussion thinking, wow, this is really interesting. And then and then you jumped in and I thought, oh, this is our podcast. <laughs> we made a really interesting podcast. We actually podcast. made a really interesting podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, luckily we do sometimes. But now it's back to work again after the break. I thought it we might as well just kick off this kind of season, not that we describe them as seasons, by looking ahead a bit, looking at what the big issues are that we will be keeping an eye on. I thought maybe one of the things would be to tie it to some of the anniversaries that have been commemorated during the last couple of weeks. Yeah, and let's not forget that we also should mention some of the things we're planning to make sure that people know what we're up to and what they should expect in future. Okay, promise to do that at the end. But let's uh, start off with some of those big anniversaries. Um, Myanmar, it's the 10th anniversary of the forced displacement of the Rohingya minority from Myanmar. I'm relying on you, as always, Steph, to uh, do a bit of Stephopedia. Um, I have in mind International Court of Justice. There's been stuff going on, maybe ICC. Tell me, what's happening? Well, what I missed because I was already on holiday, but I definitely followed from my holiday destination is that the ICJ decided that it does have jurisdiction to hear the complaint of the claim of the Gambia. And the complaint of the Gambia is about genocide. It's about genocide. So yes, so the Gambia said Myanmar is committing genocide against the Rohingya and I'm a party to the Genocide Convention and so is uh, Myanmar and they should stop it. And as a party to the Genocide Convention, uh, I have like legal standing to uh, bring up this issue and the Myanmar had argued several things that um, Gambia wasn't directly involved and then maybe it couldn't bring a claim like this. It also argued that Gambia was bringing the claim on behalf of the International Organization for Islamic States which supports the Gambia's claim and that it should be kind of thrown out on that basis but the judges all said no this can go ahead so now we're waiting for hearings on the merits. I know there's more stuff to to say, but I'm wondering with that, what kinds of things would you be especially be looking out for in the future? What are the what are the tangible, I mean, there may be very small things, very legal things, but what are the, the, the tangible things that you're going to be saying, ah, that's that's really crucial and significant? What I'm really interested in is um the evidence that Gambia is going to bring to prove that it's genocide because... It's a really high threshold, isn't it's it, a to really actually high, prove yeah. genocide? And and previously when they decided, they have one case where they decided it's genocide, which was the Bosnia-Serbia case before the ICJ. And there, of course, you had ICTY ruling a genocide. So the judges had another court to rely on, which which, of course, they don't have here. And my experience with ICJ judges is that they don't like to, in that sense, decide things for themselves if there's no 
legal precedent for them. And what else on the ICJ? Did I see some other countries getting involved? What does that mean? They're intervening in the case. I saw it from the UK and Germany, and that basically means they can make arguments in the case. So they have said that they are intervening on behalf of the Gambia. So it's also just a kind of diplomatic way of throwing your support and making a case in international law to say that what Myanmar is doing is wrong or that genocide should be uh, you know, prosecuted, those kinds of things. Um, but I, I think it's, it's mostly also a kind of show of force and support. And also they will probably hire some very nice high-priced lawyers to make really great arguments for Gambia, which is, you know, good. Then you have a lot of legal scholars arguing a point. And is it worthwhile mentioning international criminal court in relation to Myanmar? I mean, there is a case, I mean, based on the fact that Bangladesh is a member of the international criminal court and that the Rohingya were mainly forced out into Bangladesh. So there's some crimes that happened in Myanmar that have continued in Bangladesh. But do we know anything about what's going on? There's still whispers about the investigation. There are also whispers about uh, defected soldiers that have sometimes spoken to the media, that maybe they're also speaking to the prosecutor. But we have never been able, uh, we, you know, I'm talking about the Reuters team in that sense. The royal we. The royal we. have never been able to kind of get that uh, uh, verified. The last thing that I saw with the ICC was an outreach report of what the registry had all done. Lots of that is redacted. And the main thing that stood out to me is that they haven't been able to actually go to Bangladesh in that reporting period to actually meet with people because of all kinds of restrictions. But that's always the trouble with the ICC is that it's very hard to get outreach organized and getting out to Cox Bazaar, where most of the Rohingya refugees are, is uh, difficult. A couple of things that I kind of noted on this was... um I really like the phrase that uh, Priya Pillai has used for a symposium that she's running on Opinion Juris, or Opinion Juris, never know which, um, describing this as international indifference sort of 10 years down the road. And the other thing was still how important documentation is to you know the people that we talk to mainly. I was listening to Nick Komidjian, who's the head of the Independent Investigation Mechanism for Myanmar, the IIMM. It was a session organised by Victims Advocates International. And they were still talking about the big variety of avenues for the material that they are collecting. They mentioned, for example, Argentina, which is still a case that we haven't covered properly, maybe one day, um, which is about sexual and gender-based crimes on the basis of universal jurisdiction, that there'd be a case in Argentina on what happened in, in Myanmar. But they mentioned that much of their material could also be used at the ICJ could also be used at the ICC. And the questions that were coming in in that session were from Rohingya in the camps in Bangladesh. And they were a lot of them, well, let's say half of them were about, you know, why is nothing happening kind of questions, which is very understandable. But the other half were about where can my material go? What, what what use is it for me to tell my story? And and this push was still, please let us document it. Please let us gather the information. Therefore, it can be of use at some point in the distant future. But that's so difficult because everybody, you know, when documentation is also very front and center about another situation, we're also going to talk about Ukraine. 
But there is a lot of talk about documentation and all the different things that it could go to, including as here, the ICC, the ICJ, uh, there they also have local prosecutions here with Myanmar. We're going to cover that later, yeah, don't say yeah, it yet. I won't, I won't. We'll go into it yet. Okay. But the thing is there, the big kind of bogeyman of documentation is over-documentation and we don't want a Cox's Bazaar kind of situation. Right, we're going to do a podcast on that one and we'll come to that another time. Another podcast that maybe is connected to both of these that we need to do is the idea that there should be maybe some kind of a standing investigative body from the UN so you stop creating your triple IMs and your which we're going to come to as well, and your double I, double M's, but that you have some kind of standing body. And I think that that's really interesting to see how that goes. It would be super interesting. I also, I've yet to see the kind of results of one of those um, stand uh, investigative mechanisms. Well, maybe the Kosovo Tribunal, that's the only thing, but that's from the EU. Um, investigation that then led to the Kosovo Tribunal because the political will was behind creating this, this yes. thing. That's the issue, isn't it? It always comes back to political will. Yeah. So let's go to the other one, another one on political will. The next anniversary um, I wanted to pick up is connected to Syria. It's 10 years since a massacre at Daraya, which was kind of the heart of the resistance to Bashar al-Assad. 700 people were killed in that massacre by Bashar al-Assad's forces. Terrible experiences, because I was listening to an, an event describing all of this. Troops went from door to door killing people, detaining the men um, and killing many of them and detaining women and children. People were terrified. They were sheltering in attics in basements, uh, you know, in most extraordinary circumstances and really descriptions from people about how difficult it was to get rid of the smell of blood in their noses for weeks afterwards because of the amount of slaughter that happened there. It was a session where the investigation, which has just been published, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, had been done by the Syrian British Consortium. And they've been documenting what happened 10 years ago, but with the community. And they'd actually explained to all the members of the community that they're interviewing what's going to happen to their materials, that this isn't necessarily directly for a specific court case. It's not necessarily going to end up in a case. It might do, but just it's important to get the material, not to overpromise as to what will happen, but there are very few avenues for accountability at the moment, but even just to stop a normalisation of relationship with the Syrian authorities, it's important to document how bad it was. So I found that really interesting. But again, Steph, why don't you, Stephopedia on, um, I mean, because they made it clear that there are very few avenues available. What is available on Syria at the moment? Well, on Syria, it's mostly now um, universal jurisdiction. There are cases in Germany. Um, there are cases in the Netherlands with the militia leaders being, I think the trials are being prepared at the moment. Um, there's a case in France. Uh, I think there's also cases in Sweden, and I am thinking Finland, but I would have to check with some other Scandinavian country. So that seems to be the main avenue. There is also some movement with Netherlands and Canada. People are arguing that the Netherlands and Canada maybe bring an ICJ case based on the Convention Against Torture. 
But I, what I remember on that is that it takes a long time before you even approach the ICJ. So you first start off by saying you have a dispute. Exactly. And so they're, they have done that. Where, so they're making all the, the kind of steps that you need before you could bring a case to the ICJ under the convention, because that, those are the kind of things that the court looks at. Is there a dispute? Did you try to have negotiations? Uh, then did the negotiations not work? Uh, then did you, you know, I don't know, say to somebody that this is not working, we might go further and then you can go to the ICJ. So what I understood from from a source that I spoke to in the Dutch government is that they're still in the state where they're negotiating or having talks with Syria about this issue and, and kind of establishing that there is a dispute and seeing if it could be resolved like that. Okay, a bit of a long game. Very clearly, though, there is no chance of the International Criminal Court taking this on. There was an effort several years ago to try to get a referral through uh, the UN Security Council, which is one of the ways that you can actually get a case going at the ICC. And that did not happen with the resistance from Russia, who's a party to what's been going on in, in Syria. Yes, that case of uh, people trying to have a similar case like the Myanmar case where you look at deportations via Jordan, which is a, which has a lot of Syrian refugees. But uh, I think that is not... That's not going anywhere at the moment? Or you haven't heard anything? I haven't heard anything. I'm sure the prosecutor of the ICC might be looking at it, but also the new prosecutor, Karim Khan, is not putting out those updates about initial investigations and claims. So we're, uh, under his predecessor, we could uh, every December kind of see we looked at this and we can't find enough. So we might get something in December. I mean, we should say that that's one of the things that we'll look ahead to is and um, we'll plan for is the meeting the assemblies of states parties, the meeting of the states who uh, fund the ICC. And uh, quite often there are interesting reports that come out at that time and there'll be interesting elections as well. So it's an opportunity for us to kind of delve in to what's going on. Absolutely. I think for Syria, it, like you said, it remains the long game. I think the focus on documentation is probably very much the right one. We've seen here, you know, in international justice, a lot of times that if there is regime change, then suddenly things are possible that, that weren't before. And maybe, you know, for the people of Syria, that is something that will happen. I felt it was really interesting what you said about documentation, because I've been talking a lot for a story I can't yet talk about, but um, about reparations with people and the different kind of reparations and that we're always talking about compensation. Um, but they also said it's just so important to have that acknowledgement of that, yes, you were a victim and no, it wasn't your fault and this is your story and this actually happened. And and documentation might be one of the ways to do that, especially if you don't overpromise and people understand what is the goal of what you're of the, of the material you're gathering. So picking up what you mentioned earlier about Cox's Bazaar, we are actually planning a episode on the issue of over-documentation and to see what we've learned from previous situations and therefore what is being transferred over into Ukraine, which is another subject that we need to look at. The bear in the room, the elephant in the room, as you said, we are at the six month, I, get, I hesitate to call it anniversary, but it's been six months since the Russian invasion. 
it's been a whirlwind of justice and accountability efforts, and I will stephopedia some of it. Please do. There is, right after the invasion, there was fairly quickly a referral to the ICC from 43 states. Because we should mention Ukraine has given the ICC jurisdiction but isn't a member, and then 43 states joined in and said, oi, do something. Yes, but the, and there was already a case in preliminary investigation because Ukraine had previously, with the uh, annexation of the Krim and the and the war in the Donbas or the the uh, fighting in the Donbas, had given the ICC uh, jurisdiction to look at all those things. And so, on top of that, came this referral from forty three states, which really set off a whole chain of stuff, including a turn of cash. To the ICC. Absolutely. I think Khan is there is being money thrown at the office of the prosecutor for investigation. I think he's very adamant that he doesn't necessarily want it earmarked for Ukraine and that it goes to his own office. I mean, I hope I'm sure it doesn't. But I'm also there's a lot of attention for Ukraine from everything. And, and he's trying to balance it out by going to the CAR by doing things there, by going to Darfur. But, you know, the international media is also very thick. Also, you know, he gets questioned about Ukraine a lot. And I think he's been there twice, which is unprecedented that a prosecutor shows up in in an active conflict. And uh, we also had here in The Hague a big accountability conference that he was at and um, uh, many different dignitaries were at to to all suggest their their commitment to it but apart from the ICC there's the ICC is also involved for the first time ever in in a joint investigative team yes those are the things that Eurojust the European uh, kind of prosecution organization puts together where they uh, can kind of coordinate between different states in the same investigation. So there's several states who've opened um, universal jurisdiction cases into Ukraine. There's the ICC with the Ukraine case. And then there's also Ukraine at the ICJ. What is that? That's another genocide case, but it isn't a genocide case, but it is. What's going on there? It's a genocide case, but it's based on, it's not like the other genocide cases. It's a genocide case, but not like we know it. It is actually based on the fact that Russia said that it invaded or the Russian president said that he invaded Ukraine because Ukraine was committing genocide against Russians. That's the kind of Russian... Against Russian speakers. Yeah, it's the, the Russian narrative of there are Nazis and they're trying to eliminate Russian speakers and blah, blah, blah. And so they said that that's some kind of abuse of the genocide convention, that you're using that as a pretext for uh, for an armed conflict, for an invasion uh, that is wrong under international law. And that's the only way they can bring that case to the ICJ, because even though everybody knows that you shouldn't invade sovereign countries and that's against international law, there's no actual mechanism to bring that kind of case for the ICJ. It has to be linked to some agreement or a uh, treaty. A treaty. But Everybody else has joined in that thing at the ICJ as well. I've certainly seen a lot of other countries joining in with their opinion. And again, is that like you were describing for Myanmar? Is it very much a kind of mark of diplomatic approval, which side we're on? Or do all of those legal opinions mean something? Yeah, it's a, it's a very, it's a diplomatic move of which side we're on. And it's also kind of get your two cents on. So I think in that sense, genocide scholars are probably rubbing their hands to see all these kind of new international opinions, because what's going to happen is you have a hearing, and then people can kind of annex their opinion. So I'm assuming 
Um, but I don't know because this is the first, I think I had one, I followed one case previously at the ICJ where you had a lot of these interventions, which was a case about nuclear energy and a lot of people, a lot of countries wanted their say to kind of shape international law about it. So I think we're going to see that too, where you just have hearings and then they are going to put in all these kind of legal arguments. So it's, it sounds kind of exciting that they're going to fight shoulder to shoulder, but it will probably we be... We know what the reality is, though, that it's very, very incy-mincy, teeny tiny little interpretations. Very important, I'm sure, if that's if that's what you find interesting, but, but quite difficult to make, um, I don't know, let's say quite difficult to make really interesting journalism out of. Absolutely. And, and the thing that we see that is very much uh, kind of interesting journalism that we see covered a lot is that Ukraine has started its own war crimes trials and also Russia has started its own war crimes trials. Yeah, and some people are quite critical of particularly the Russian ones uh, as not being particularly according to the book. And the Ukraine ones also have some issues with them. Yeah, let's put uh, straight up that, yes, there's criticism from both on both those war crimes trials. Russia, of course, uh, is a lot more ongoing criticism about the way that the Russian trials are run and, and the Russian government influences trials and the rights of defendants in Russia. Uh, we see that a lot with the opposition leaders of Ukraine. I think the critique there on the Ukraine side is that maybe the judges uh, don't have all the expertise and the understanding of international humanitarian law to be able to to completely come up with very good decisions. Maybe they're quite fast trials as well. That was one argument, but I have to say in defense of Ukraine, the Netherlands also has those kind of two-day, three-day trials where a lot of is done before. Um, on the other hand, it it's usually... just people like me, sort of Brits, who uh, who are used to the adversarial system, who uh, think, oh, how can it only take that I, amount I think, of time? Yeah, the the argument is that it's very fast, and 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 looking at the that the at the sentences that come out, uh, you see a lot of international law experts and people like me who follow the international tribunals sound. Some of these sentences seem really high compared to what we see in the international system, but of course that tends to happen generally with local trials. I mean, in, in local trials, in a Dutch uh, murder trial, if the murder is high profile enough, you can get a life sentence. While, you know, there is uh, there is the general who led the attack on the Srebrenica enclave, which resulted in the Srebrenica genocide, uh, is, didn't get a life sentence. He got 40 years, so, you know, he will be in prison for the rest of his life, but it's not a life sentence because they have to kind of save something for the worst of the worst. And so you see as a rule that in, in, in local prosecutions or local um, verdicts are always higher than international verdicts. So that is a criticism that we saw with the, with the Ukraine war crimes trials. But there are so many people watching them. I'm thinking, I, I, I assume that Ukraine very much wants to... To do its best. I mean, it's not as if they're being hidden in, yes. in any way. They're, they're very much on display. But... The other thing with Ukraine is this whole debate uh, that got everybody very excited again in our world about um, whether there should be a new tribunal because of its limitations, the International Criminal Court, even though it can put somebody on trial for aggression for in some countries, if they've got a member state, et cetera, et cetera, but it can't definitely deal with aggression to do with Ukraine. So that created this space for everybody and their uncle to come up with uh, what kind of a new tribunal there should be, whether it should just be for aggression, whether it should be for aggression plus other crimes, 
whether uh, it should be created under some kind of UN auspices, which would be difficult, or whether it should be created under some European basis. I mean, really, just the numbers of papers and panels and discussions that I saw uh, around this. I don't know what you think, um, Stephanie. I'm particularly thinking about uh, when you look at your experience in the Balkans. I mean, does it really help this whole kind of let's create yet another thing and another thing and another thing? I think that's a, yeah, that's a that's a problem, and that's the, the sense that all of this transitional justice thing is being thrown in Ukraine, and all these ideas are being floated, and there's a huge amount of focus on prosecution of wrongdoers of perpetrators of war criminals and while that is of course important and it's our bread and butter um it also seems that everybody's looking at that and then there and that is where the kind of good story is and the good story is not in you know how is somebody who is living in uh Kherson going to get his flat back and how is that going to be arranged and so so people's realities of people's lives is not necessarily there. Well, we can't argue, though, completely against our own podcast idea, no, which is ca- covering this justice and accountability world. We yeah, just well, recognise co- it is an issue, that it's not the only thing going on in the world. No, and, and you could argue that justice might also be uh, kind of uh, a reparative justice and, and getting victims a chance to get their life back on track. But uh, yes, I cannot argue against my my own podcast. I think what the Balkans and what the former Yugoslavia has taught us is that 30 years on, there are still people looking for uh, ways to rebuild their lives. And I think that's the big, that sounds trite, but that's the big tragedy of Ukraine. When you look at what is happening now for following this for so long, as you and I and most people who follow these kind of trials know that this is 30 years down the line we could still be we we would still be talking about this and there are still people that are so affected and that haven't been you know felt supported or helped and and it's it's almost it's such a gargantuan task to to do this that that it's you know on the one hand it for our profession is going to keep me in a job for in the next uh, 10 years at least on the other hand it's a bit depressing when you look ahead. Yeah, you know how how destructive this is. Maybe we can um, be slightly less depressed, uh, sort of rounding up the podcast by saying practically what else um, are we planning to do? For example, we managed to track down Megan Hurst, who was a victim's advocate at the ECCC, the Cambodia Tribunal, and who resigned recently and talks through with us what are the most important things about trying to represent victims and why she felt the Cambodia Tribunal wasn't uh, pulling its weight and why she she felt that she had to resign. What else? And we talked wildlife and transnational organized crime. So lots of pangolin and tiger talk for me and elephant ivory and how wildlife crime connects to international organized crime and that it's often intermingles and how to look at that and how to prosecute more wildlife crime and also possibly get international organized uh, crime syndicates. We have lots of other uh, plans. We won't um, jinx them by telling you every single one. But for example, there's one where we will be going in, I hope, uh, in detail on the history of reparations and looking back a bit, um, maybe to last century, maybe even earlier, to understand uh, where the ideas came from as to you know why 
one group of people or one country should should pay another one. Absolutely. And we have uh, Philip Sands, who's going to talk to us about his new book and the ICJ. And this is all about the Chagos advisory opinion. Of course, while we have him in the hot seat, we'll also ask about his uh, support for the Ukraine aggression tribunal. Well, I hope we get time to to do all of that with him. I'm particularly interested to uh, to push him on the uh, the uh, the changes that we've seen going on at the ICJ and what the effect of that Chagos advisory opinion uh, has been. Kind of, I think it's got got quite a ripple effect. Uh, so lots of different subjects coming up. Um, just to say to anybody who's still listening at the end of the podcast, hello. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. I mean, don't hesitate to reach out to either of us or directly to the podcast and tell us what what you want uh, to tackle. But uh, should we finish off traditionally, uh, Stephanie? What have you been watching or reading or listening to? Well, what I've been binge watching since you recommended to me, I guess that that must be what Priya Pillai recommended to me. It's Extraordinary Attorney Wu. Yes, yes. <laughs> Which is in in Korean, isn't it? Absolutely. So it's really, you know, it's very weird watching it, but it is lovely. It is lovely. It's about an attorney in Korea on the autism spectrum who does all kinds of cases, but it also explains a lot about autism and um shows how she navigates the professional world and there's lots of whale talk which i very much enjoy in in, in footage of dolphins it is very sweet um i tried another one which also has a main lawyer female character that's uh she hulk attorney at law which is the new marvel character uh where this um i've only managed to watch one so far and it's very it's quite fun and self-knowing but just uh I feel that not worthy of binge watching necessarily, um, sort of dip into maybe. Try and think what else I've been, have I actually done any reading at all? Oh, I turned back to Norman Lewis's work, um, who is a big anthropologist, and because I was, somebody mentioned something that he, he had written, and I just wanted to go back to some of his, his early books, which are about some of the most interesting places in the world. So I'll put some some links to his work um, in case, I mean, I think it was a reference to Martha Gellhorn that was, and then who he used to know. And, you know, he was just one of those people who knew everybody um, in the 50s and 60s and travelled as an anthropologist and just he has so much, and he writes really, really well. Have you been reading anything? I've been reading, and I have to Google it now, but I had um, a recommendation of somebody who recommended a science fiction story of, so it's set in the future to like a colony to Earth, and then they have androids doing their work for them, and one of them gets uh, accused of murder, but they have some rights. And so the question is like, what kind of rights does AI have uh, because they can, I think the idea was that in the future, when the AI has committed a crime, the crime, uh, the punishment is that they get reset. Uh, but they are sentient, so then is it murder? And then there is some UN decision or some kind of future UN decision, and she has to argue in this murder case for the for the rights of the, the of the yeah, sentient being. Exactly the the, the quote unquote human rights of the AI, which is very it's very law uh, mixed with science fiction, but it was very uh, lovely. Well, we'll I'll have to Google. I have to find it. We'll put the link in yes. the uh, in the show notes. But yeah, I mean, off we go for for the next few months. Um, we'll just uh, 
carry on trying to cover as much of this world as we can fit in in between our uh, our other busy lives. Absolutely. And how, yeah, we have a lot of good ideas and people we want to talk to. And let's hope that we we could get all these people actually talking to us. Well, that's getting easier and easier, but to actually get ourselves to record everything. Yes, that's the difficulty, finding the time. But we will. Okay, we will. See you soon. See you. Bye. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development, and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com, and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word.